You know, the return of Christ, the reality of his second coming was a complicated subject for me when I was younger. If I'm being honest with you, I was a little frightened by the prospect of his coming back because of all the things that I heard would accompany his return. All that talk of beasts and dragons and fire can really mess with a kid's mind to the point where when I would be driving down the road with my mom or my dad and, and it was a cloudy day and the clouds begin to part, you know, those beams of light would come through. I would begin to think, oh, this could be the moment when the sky is about to split and Jesus is about to return. I'm a little nervous about that. So in my mind, I just said, I'm going to set it aside and not think about it very much. Then as I got older, I realized that for many in the church, the topic of his return, the second coming, was really contentious. The, the way he would return, the timing of his return, had become such a hot-button issue that it was just easier not to talk about sometimes because people got mad, like really mad. If, if you had a different perspective on a, a secondary issue regarding his return. So for many years, I just didn't engage with this topic. I would say generic things about the return of Jesus, but I didn't want to study it or have edifying conversations about it because of the way that the topic had been complicated for me. Over time, though, I've come to realize that my failure to engage fully in this wonderful topic was robbing me of some essential encouragement that God had provided for me and that I needed in order to walk in faithfulness, in order to become more like Christ. Consider for a moment the words of Paul to the Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, at this point in that letter, Paul has been teaching them about the second coming of Christ and specifically what it means for those in the faith who have already died. And he's told the, the church that is living to not lose heart because when Christ returns, the dead will join those who are alive to meet Jesus in the air. In fact, they will rise first. And after some extensive teaching on this specific reality of the return of Jesus, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, encourage one another with these words. Encourage. All the teaching on the return of Christ was meant to be an encouragement to the faithful to remain faithful, to endure. And looking back on it now, I think the enemy was sowing seeds of fear and confusion on this topic in my mind to rob me of that encouragement, a work that I'm sure he has done in many within the church, maybe, maybe some of you who are here with us today. So what I would like to do this morning at the direction of our text and the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of just some of the encouragements we can receive when we think about the return of Christ. At the end of Matthew 25, Jesus is ending his Olivet Discourse, the last discourse that he offers in Matthew's Gospel. And friends, there is much, much for us to be encouraged by if we are in Christ. Now, it should be said that if you are not in Christ, this passage will and should be troubling. And we hope that by the grace of God in hearing this message today, hearing the words of Jesus, that you will receive the warning that he is offering about future judgment. 
But for those of us who are in Christ, may we this morning embrace the glimpse that Jesus offers into the full hope that we have in his work. Because the return of Christ, the, the teaching about his coming, his judgment, all of this is meant to be an encouragement, a, a sustaining source of encouragement for us as his people as we steward his kingdom until the day he returns. We should see that the return, the judgment, all of this as, as a source of great hope and fuel for us to continue in the work of the gospel, especially in times of great difficulty. Because our willingness to sacrifice in this life for the work of the kingdom is deeply tied, I believe, to our belief about what will happen when Jesus comes back. So let's consider the encouragement that Christ has for us. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Here's what the word of God says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and it will be glorious, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will take the, the sheep and place them on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, but Lord, when did we see you this way? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you this way? Hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick in prison and did not minister to you. And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of these least, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now on the face of it, this text might not seem like the most encouraging teaching you've ever heard in your life. And I agree that there are some serious and sobering aspects to Jesus's words. But as I was reading this passage over the past week and asking the Spirit to teach me and show me the intention of Jesus' words to his disciples then and to us today, I, I was deeply encouraged, emboldened to do more for the work of the gospel. Four encouragements in particular stuck out to me as I considered the words of Jesus. Now, certainly there are more encouragements to be had as we think about the whole of the New Testament's teaching about the return of Jesus, but these four are a good starting point for us. And I want us to devote our attention this morning to them. 
So the first encouragement that I believe we should take away from Jesus' teaching here is that Jesus takes the treatment of his people seriously. Be encouraged, church, because what Jesus unveils for us here is that he cares about how his people are treated. In many ways, this one statement could be a summary for the whole passage because it's the major focus of Jesus' act of judgment. Christ has returned in glory. He's surrounded by angels. He's ascended his throne in order to judge the nations. He's gathered the whole earth before him. And then he begins to separate everyone into one of two camps. Sheep should do my right hand. Sheep, goats. Righteous, wicked. Blessed, cursed. There are only two options. What's interesting about the criterion for the camp you end up in is that it is tied to how you treat the people of God. How you treat messengers from God when they are sent out to do the work of the kingdom. Notice, notice in verse 40. Jesus says, as you did these acts of mercy, or did not do these acts of mercy, but in verse 40, as you did these acts of mercy to the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, you did it to me. How these people, the nations, treat the brothers of Jesus. In some way, that forms the basis of the judgment that Jesus is handing out. Now, to understand the full thrust of what Christ is saying here, we need to go back a little bit in our study of Matthew's gospel. You may remember in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus calls out 12 apostles, and then he sends them out. He gives them authority to heal and to teach as a test run of sorts of, of what they will be assigned to do at the ascension of Jesus. And he tells them, go out among the Jewish people without packing. Don't take any money or a bag. Don't even take an extra cloak. Rather, rely on me. Find people I've already prepared to receive you and allow them to bless you as an extension of, of my ministry to you in your ministry. And then he says in verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, you shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town and know it would be better, more bearable for those that rejected you to have been in Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than on the day of judgment that is coming. He's bringing that teaching back with, to within this discourse. And he wants his apostles to know, and he wants us as his disciples to know today that obedience to Jesus sometimes is costly because we are engaged in spiritual warfare, a conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And as we serve Jesus, we will feel, feel the effect of that conflict. We may suffer as we walk in obedience. Some among us may even die. But Jesus wants us to know that whatever sacrifice we endure in obedience to him, it will not go unnoticed. It will not go unjudged. Rather, when he returns, he will hold true to his word. And the people of the nations that have rejected the servants of Jesus, a reflection of the fact that they have rejected Jesus himself, 
will be judged. Now the point here is not for us to begin to pray condemnation on anybody who, who's mean to us. We're still called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, which is of itself a supernatural reality. But it should give us encouragement that nothing that happens in this life goes unnoticed by God. His eye is on us at all times. And what an encouragement that providential truth is for God's people. Oftentimes, we can think that God is absent in moments of difficulty, especially, especially when they come in seasons of faithfulness. Our, our trip to Ethiopia is still top of mind for me, and I was thinking this week about some of our brothers and sisters that we met who are actively ministering in places where they are beaten or imprisoned for their witness. One young man in particular sticks out in my mind. He went to a very difficult place to do ministry, and when he got there, was beaten to the point where he has severe spinal issues. He's got a noticeable limp now, all because he went to tell people about Jesus. Last week, he was getting MRIs. He's hoping the doctors can figure out a way for him to recover from these injuries. But as I talked to this young man, and I talked to others who had experienced similar things and their faithfulness to God, they did not hold grudges against those who beat them. They did not hold grudges against God who allowed it in their life. Rather, they had embraced the, the posture of Paul who in the book of Philippians chapter one, while he's in prison says, I want you to know brothers, that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel because there's not a soul in this prison who doesn't know why I'm sitting here in chains. And it's not because of the Roman government. It's because I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond that, the church is emboldened because they're, they're seeing me and my witness while I'm sitting in chains and they're asking if Paul can be that bold in prison, what excuse do I have in freedom to not talk about Jesus? Church, if God allows it, he has purpose for it. Do you believe that? If God allows it, he has purpose for it. And in the end, know that God sees whatever hardship he allows and he will redeem it either in the salvation of those who are performing the acts against you or who are witnessing it and see your witness in the midst of difficulty and respond to the kind of faith they are seeing and the hope that we are evidencing in the gospel of Jesus or in judgment when Christ will judge those who have rejected you because ultimately their rejection of you is a reflection of the greater fact that they have rejected him. His eye is on the sparrow. And if his eye is on the sparrow, his eye is on us. Praise be to God. Does that encourage you? I hope so. The second encouragement from Matthew 25. Now this encouragement flows from the first and I think deepens its effect for us. Our text shows us through the actions of judgment that Jesus 
cares about how his people are treated because Jesus intimately identifies with his people. That's a good word. Now listen, we're gonna wade in some, to some deep theological waters just for a moment, but I promise you the water's fine. And it's gonna be really good. Listen, it's not just that God sees all that we will endure for his kingdom. We need to believe that he is with us. He's with us. Let's return to Christ's act of judgment in our text. The king says to the sheep on his right, beginning in verse 34, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. And here's why. Here's why you are qualified to enter into this kingdom that God has prepared, because you cared for me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, you you can enter in the kingdom because you cared for me. When you saw me in need, you met that need. Physical, social needs, you met them. But notice the response of the righteous in verses 37 to 39. That's great, Jesus, but I don't remember doing that for you. When, When did we see you hungry, thirsty? When did we see you naked or in prison? And how does Jesus respond? Again, in verse 40. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Look, notice the language here. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. It's pretty remarkable. Jesus says, when you care for my people, you care for me. And the opposite, of course, is true for those who are cursed, who rejected his people, ignored their need, turned away from them. Evidence of the fact that they were turning away from Jesus. It's a remarkable statement that reminds us even more of the great blessing of salvation for those of us who are a part of the people of God. Friends, when we are saved... We are saved in Christ. We are saved through Christ. We are saved by Christ. We are saved in Christ. Christ knits himself together with us as his people. He's identified with us. He identifies us with us even now so that we can identify with him. There is a oneness that Jesus is offering and desires of us, a depth of fellowship that we can only Imagine, Jesus wants us to know him in in remarkable ways. He's made himself so available to us that Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4 that being in Christ allows us to become partakers of his divine glory. Never forget that Jesus is God with us. And even as he is physically apart right now at the right hand of the Father, he is spiritually near. So near, in fact, the Bible says that we as his people are temples of the living God because Christ is in us through the indwelling work of the Spirit. I want you to celebrate that today because you are not alone. You are not on your own. And yes, we rejoice in the gift of God's church. We we rejoice in the fact that God has not just saved us from sin, but for a purpose and, and to a people. It is wonderful and glorious to be with the people of God, but there is an an even greater promise 
that is ours in the gospel, that we are not just a part of a people, we are in Christ. In Christ. Every day, when we are walking in faithfulness, we are walking in Christ. He is with us, and we are with him. Does that encourage you? Does it also challenge you? Do you look like you're walking with Jesus? Do you look like he is in you? When, when people encounter you on a daily basis, outside of this room, outside of what we do on Sunday morning, I hope here, I hope here, but when they encounter you in the real world, this is for Jared, when you're driving down the street, when you're at work, when you're in your neighborhood, when, when they get a glimpse of you, do they think, he's, he's walking with Jesus. She's, she's walking with, there's something different, qualitatively different in them that lets me know something supernatural, something incredible is happening in their life. Friends, if there's any offense in me, I don't want it to be a selfish offense. I want it to be a, an offense that comes from the gospel of walking in Christ. I pray that all of us have a desire that the Lord would, would use us for his kingdom. We would not be a stumbling plot, but we would be an aroma of Christ to those who do not yet know him. And know that we are able to walk in faithfulness, walk in steadfastness, walk and endure even in difficult times, because Christ is with us, he's in us, and we are in him. It is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. Do not think in a moment of hardship that God is not present. He is there, and the Spirit is the seal of that promise. Encouragement number three. God cares about how his people are treated because he identifies intimately with us. And then thirdly, it's an encouragement that's also an expectation. Jesus expects his people to show spirit-led compassion. He is encouraging us to be a merciful people because being a merciful people is an essential quality of being a kingdom citizen. This is kind of, again, the, the other side of the same coin that we've been discussing. We need to spend a little, to the a little bit of time here because this aspect of Christ's teaching, specifically here in Matthew 25, has been consistently misapplied throughout the history of the church, leading to some really poor theology. Many have used this aspect of Jesus' teaching, the requirement that he gives for us living with compassion and mercy, to promote both or either a works-based salvation or a social gospel. And, and the social gospel is seeing the true end of gospel work as the complete eradication of any social brokenness in this life. But both of those teachings, works-based salvation and social gospel, fall short. They miss the mark of the teaching of the Bible. So let's really flesh out what Jesus is saying here to make sure we understand the criterion he is using of declaring some to be sheep and some to be goats. What qualifies the sheep to be sheep? What qualifies the goats to be goats? And the course of the text seems like 
It's how they respond to the work of Jesus and the work of the messengers he is sent to do that work. And what Jesus is teaching us is that those who are truly of the kingdom, those who are truly a part of the people of God, will notice the work of God and work to support it because they themselves have experienced the work of God. They can see because they have spiritual eyes, the the scales of sin have fallen off. They can see what others cannot see because God has given them gospel sight. Those who are truly a part of God's people will recognize their brothers and sisters when they are working and they will work to serve them regardless of the the cost. Think for a moment about the work of judgment that Jesus has been engaging in up to this point in his ministry. He's been separating the wheat from the tares or the wheat from the weeds. Do you remember this in Matthew chapter 13? And this is from among his own people, the people of the old covenant, the people of Israel. There are some in Jewish leadership and among the laity of the Jewish people who do not know God. And more than that, have a hardened heart toward the things of God. They've been actively, some of them, trying to destroy messengers sent by God. We saw that in Matthew 23. They're like the wicked servants we talked about in Matthew 24, who upon seeing the delay of their master, beat their fellow servants while also indulging in the pleasures of this world. And Jesus has been doing a work of revelation. He's been showing their unfaithfulness through his teaching as an act of grace to those of of the people who've been deceived by their teaching, but also as an act of grace to the very ones who are weeds and the hope that they would would see how, how far their heart is away from God and they themselves would repent. And what began as an act of judgment within the people of God will expand to the end of time, not just among the covenant people, but the whole earth because all the nations are in view here in Matthew 25. Those who are really a part of the people of God from among the kingdoms of this world will live with compassion. They will show mercy and sacrifice for the work of God as evidence of belonging to the kingdom, as evidence of God's saving work within them. And this is a really important distinction for us to make sure that we hold on to, a distinction that is laid out throughout the course of the whole teaching of the Bible. The work of mercy and compassion is not itself a requirement for salvation. It is a quality of salvation. It's an effect of the saving work of God in our life. It's meant to be an example of the fact that God has worked within us because those who are in the kingdom can see the work of God in the power of the Spirit and they can respond to it because the Spirit allows them to. Working for the kingdom is evidence of the fact that you are in the kingdom. Works do not save us, but true God-given faith leads to both salvation, praise the Lord, and good works, which is affirmed in the teaching of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. So hear the encouragement. 
True followers of Jesus will be compassionate. True followers of Jesus will be merciful, just as Jesus was. Listen, we are called to care for our own families. It's a priority. We take care of those that God has entrusted to us. But as a part of a church, we also are called to care for each other. And then globally, as a people, we are called to care for our brothers and sisters all around the world who are doing the work of the gospel. We as a church must be engaged not only in missionary sending, but missionary care. We must be engaged in church planting, but also caring for those who are planting the church because all of those acts of service, all of those acts of mercy are a natural outflow of those who love Jesus. And even when the acts of mercy and compassion extend beyond the people of God, touching brokenness wherever we see it to the less fortunate around us, that action in and of itself is an extension of our desire to see the gospel spread, hoping to to meet a greater spiritual need through the meeting of a physical need. And all of this, is painting a picture of, uh, for us of our ultimate hope. Remember, one of the lessons that we've been taking away from our study in the Gospel of Matthew is that we as the church, we as the people of God, are meant to be kingdom outposts. When, when people show up to our church, when they come to Bayleaf Baptist Church, our desire, our hope, is that they will get a taste of what eternity will be like. Because we love each other. We want to encourage each other. We're worshiping Jesus. We're giving all glory to Christ. We're taking care of each other. That's unusual. It's not how people normally work in a broken and fallen world. And yet because of the work that God has done in us, it shows up in the way that we serve one another. The way that we show compassion to one another. And the hope is that what we're getting a taste of now will draw our attention to a future reality when we will sit around a table with Jesus and there will be no thirst in us, no hunger in us, nothing lacking because we are fully satisfied in Christ. So think about that. When we engage in acts of mercy among our brethren, but even among the world. We are evidencing fruit of the gospel in our life, and we are painting a picture of a future reality that we are all longing for. Evidencing that we are part of this kingdom. Finally, the fourth encouragement, which again has been present throughout the other encouragements is that Jesus will bring perfect justice to his people on the day of judgment. Jesus will bring perfect justice to his people on the day of judgment. It is true and it's a reality that we need to talk about even though it's not the most uplifting thing to discuss that Christians will suffer greatly for the gospel. Some have Some are now, some will in the future. Some Christians will die for the gospel. They will lay down their life 
for the work of Christ. And the natural question that I'm sure was being asked in the time of Jesus and that many ask today is, is it worth it? Should we endure even in the face of death? Should we go to hard places that are violently opposed to Christ? One of the the great reminders as we think about the return of Jesus is that our hope as the people of God is not in this world. It's not. And more than that, God is mindful of our suffering. It situates our hope, but it also reminds us that God is not unaware. He's not unaware of what we suffer, but also he's not unaware of those who have brought the suffering, both in a spiritual and a physical sense. He's aware of the powers and principalities that we are wrestling against. He's he's aware of the physical realities that the, the spiritual powers are using to bring about that suffering. And if we're going to remain faithful, especially when it's difficult, we must trust in the ultimate judgment of God. That whatever is wrong, he will set right. That he will be our defender. And he will use all that we offer for his glory and our good. Listen, your name may be tarnished for the name of Jesus. Your reputation may be taken for his glory. You may miss out on that promotion. You may lose a friend group. You may be looked down upon by your government or the celebrity class of your day. You may have your home taken and your business shut down. That's a reality for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today just because they are following Jesus. You may be beaten, stoned, spat on, rejected by your family, all for the sake of Christ. Some of our brothers and sisters will die. But know that even as we face injustice, just as Jesus did, perfect justice will be given on that day when Jesus takes his throne. Can we rest in that? Do we we believe the gospel enough to rest in that? Friends, what happens here, what we're praying for, it does not go unnoticed by Jesus. Let me, let me just remind you of a, a complimentary passage in Revelation chapter 8 that I hope will encourage us even more. I was teaching through Revelation a few years ago on Wednesday nights at our church in Irving. And I remember getting to Revelation 8 and just being taken by what I read. This is as the seventh seal is about to open, indicating the final judgment. And as the seventh seal is being opened, there is a moment of silence, an interlude before this promised judgment begins to take place. And listen to what happens here. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense, listen this, incense to offer with what? The prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with 
the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth where there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Think about this. Judgment is about to come. And right before Jesus judges the earth, what is brought to his mind? What What is brought to his attention? The prayers of the saints. Think about what that means. All, all the, the martyred saints who are in heaven even now, who are saying, when? When will you bring justice? Their prayers have not gone unheard. Your prayers, when you are in great difficulty, when you've experienced injustice in this world, they do not go unheard. God, even now, is storing them up so that the exact right time, they will guide They will fuel this act of judgment on behalf of his people. Isn't that remarkable? Friends, I I hope that encourages you. God is, is, is hearing us. He's responding to us. He is loving us enough to hold these prayers tightly so that in his perfect timing, they can be answered. There's no perfect justice in this life, just imperfect justice. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue better imperfect justice wherever we can. We just need to realize the limitations of this life. It's the consequence of living in a broken and fallen world full of broken people. But there is coming a day when perfect justice will be given And for those of us in Christ, that should delight our soul. It should affect the way that we respond to suffering because God is our defender and we're going to entrust our life to him. But it also should allow us to endure because again, if God has allowed it, he has purpose to it. Church, are you encouraged? Will you live with greater urgency and gospel intentionality because of what awaits us at the return of Jesus? I hope so. I hope that we as a people are willing to give greatly for the kingdom because we know what awaits the faithful. Let's receive this encouragement today and live in the light of Jesus. Now, how can we respond? Let me first say a word to those in the room who would say that you are an unbeliever. You're not a follower of Jesus. Would you today be ready for the return of Christ by giving your life to him in repentance and belief? There are only two options at the end. Only two categories to be a part of. You're either gonna be part of the sheep or the goats, and you want to be among the sheep. You want to be in the, the camp that is blessed. You want to be in the camp that is declared righteous. And the only way you can be in that, that grouping, that classification, is if you are in Christ. Would you see today God's action of love for you in Jesus
his sacrifice to free you from that future of eternal punishment and step into eternal life today. By confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you. If that's you, encourage you to give your life to Jesus. For the rest of us, those of us who are in Christ, let me ask you a few questions. As we contemplate the return of Jesus and the encouragement that that return is for us. Firstly, are are you willing to forsake this world for faithfulness to Jesus? Is there anything in this life you would not willingly give up in order to follow him? Is your heart fully set on Christ? It's a difficult question to wrestle with. But it's one we need to constantly be mindful of as we remember and consider that we are not made for this life. We are made for another. Secondly, church, are we actively looking for places to send messengers of the kingdom and to support those who are engaging in the work of the kingdom? I'm so grateful to be a part of a church like Bailey Baptist Church that loves missions, is passionate about missions. I'm so grateful that you would send me and Pastor Aaron to Ethiopia to see what's going on in Ethiopia among our brothers and sisters there and and try to figure out ways to support it. To say, hey, God is up to something here, something remarkable. And and we, as an extension of our, our responsibility to the kingdom, need to be investing in that work because God is raising up an army of gospel proclaimers who are willing to put their life on the line. They need resources. They need training. We got that. Let's go support them as a reminder that that God has resources around the world to support his work, to encourage them to remain steadfast. We need to be about that work all over the world. And I'm grateful that we as a church are committed to that and to partnering with like-minded churches and ministries to do more than we could do on our own. Let's commit that. Let's, let's never get so internally focused that we forget our external responsibility. And where an eternal investment is needed for the sake of the gospel. And finally, will we rest in God's perfect justice? Asking him to use any injustice that we experience for the sake of the gospel. When someone does something to you because you are a follower of Jesus, do you begin to pray condemnation over them? Or do you say like Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? God, would you show them what I've seen in Jesus? And would you ask God, as Paul did, to use whatever it is that you're facing to advance the gospel. So that everyone around you knows while you're, why you are enduring with joy and hope and that it encourages the church to be faithful in our own circumstance for the sake of Jesus.
The first thing we're gonna do as an active response today is take of the supper, the Lord's Supper. And I can't think of a better response for us today as we've considered the words of Jesus because we are declaring a reality of the kingdom. That spiritually we were hungry. Spiritually we were thirsty. Spiritually we were strangers. Ashamed. Sick. Imprisoned. And Jesus showed incredible mercy and compassion to us. So that we are no longer those things. He has, he has saved us, he has satisfied us, and the taste of satisfaction that we have now that is leading to joy, we will enjoy for all eternity around the table of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful reality to think about and consider today, church? As we pre prepare to respond to the taking of the supper, let me just remind us of a couple of things. If you are a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to the table today. Now, there are some caveats to that. We want you to be in, in a good place to receive the supper because the scripture warns us of taking this in a way that is harmful to us because the testimony is untrue. So let me ask you this question. When you partake of the supper, when you partake of the bread and the juice in just a minute, can you with integrity say, I am declaring a truth that I have lived out in my life, that, the, that the, the body of Christ I have found to be the bread of life and the blood of Christ I have found to be the, the water of life. That I have, I have found salvation in nowhere else. I have found satisfaction in nowhere else other than Jesus. And so I want to declare that. Is that the testimony you're offering today? Because if there's any sin in your life that's unconfessed, you need to confess it. If there are any issues of fellowship in your life before the Lord that you feel like he's leading you to deal with and that needs to be dealt with before we take up the supper today because this testimony matters. It matters as an encouragement to the people around you to be, to be reminded of, of what they are also testifying to and it matters to those who are not yet in Christ. And let me address you just for a minute. If you're not yet in Jesus, we would ask you to abstain from this moment, not partake of the supper, but also to witness and watch the testimony that we are declaring collectively that Jesus has saved us, only he could, and that Jesus has satisfied us. And we have partaken of something, we have tasted of something that we long for to enjoy forever. And would you ask the Holy Spirit to allow this declaration through the physical act of the supper to be used by God to draw you to himself? So wherever you are, would you bow your heads? And let's, let's consider our own hearts before the Lord. The testimony that we're about to give. Are we offering true testimony? Is there any part of our lives that would hinder this testimony? Would you confess that to the Lord right now? And ask him to remove it, to cover it. Is there any relationship issue that's 
hindering your relationship with the Lord that you need to confess right now and act on later that the Lord brings to mind. Father, we want to give a clear gospel declaration through the ordinance of the supper. Father, we want to declare how your body was broken, your blood was spilled for us so that we could be moved from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of the Son. And now we feast on different delights that lead us to delight in you. May that be an encouraging reminder to us who are in Christ today. And for anyone who is outside of Christ, may they see this witness and would you use it in the power of your spirit to draw them to yourself so they can join this fellowship of believers and taste and see that you are good, better than anything this world can offer. Find us faithful in this moment, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.